and introduce uh, John Hughes. And John Hughes is the reader in German and cultural studies at Royal Holloway uh, University. Um, and he's a previous podcast podcast guest and has given papers at the BSSH conference. So he's a real friend of the BSSH. Um, on the podcast interview that I did with John uh, a year or two ago, I think it was pre-pandemic, wasn't it? Just before, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it feels like a long time ago. Yeah. Um, we spoke about um, John's work on Joseph Roth and uh, Max Schmeling. So that podcast might be of interest to you if you've got an interest in the history of sport that John has also written about boxing history. Um, but today he's speaking to us about um, Anglo-German film production between the wars and about one film in particular. And if you were at conference, um, you would have heard a shorter version of this paper. But I'm glad that John has got the time to expand on his work on this very significant film. And uh, take it away, John, the floor is yours. Oh, thank you very much, Jeff. And thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you, everyone, for, for coming along. In this paper, um, I'm, we'll be re reassessing an unusual contribution to a popular sporting film genre, the mountain film. The German film Der Berg ruft, literally The Mountain Calls, uh, and the English language version of the same story, The Challenge, were made uh, as an Anglo-German collaboration um, in 1937 and were released in 1938. Um, so at a time of rapidly, rapidly escalating political tensions between the two countries and with Europe moving ever closer to war. I'll spend some time today contextualizing the films in terms of film history, sports history, and the ideological and geopolitical ambitions of Nazi Germany before giving an account of the film's ambivalent pol politics and with motifs of border, borders and summits in mind, their framing of questions of national, regional, and personal identity. The films present a semi-fictionalized account of a true story, the race to be the first to reach the summit of one of Europe's iconic mountains, the Matterhorn, during the so-called golden age of alpine mountaineering in the mid-19th century. This was the period in which mountaineering as a leisure practice was pioneered and to an extent standardized, if not codified as a sport, in part through the efforts of members of the British Alpine Club, Founded in 1857. Sorry. Hey, Roger. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Keep going the Matterhorn lies on the Swiss-Italian border, and with the summit uncharted, there was a there was a sense that the identity of the mountain itself was still undetermined. The film focuses on the friendship and rivalry between the British mountaineer Edward Wimper and the Italian climber and guide Jean Antoine Carrel. You can see the photographs of the two historic characters there on the screen. Carell played in both films by the actor Louis Trenka, about whom I'll be saying more. In July 1865, a team of seven, four British climbers and three local Swiss guides, led by Wimper, reached the summit, climbing from Cermatt on the Swiss side, not long before a rival team of Italian climbers, led by Carell, who had set off from Broy on the Italian side. And you can see there on the map the relative positions of uh, Cermatt in the north there and Broy, now today Broy, Savinia in the south uh, are to the mountain. You can see the, the peak of the Matterhorn there in the middle. And the Italian Swiss border, of course, then runs right across that 
um, that image, uh, the Matterhorn, essentially lying on the border. Um, this story of rivalry and competition and a race to reach a summit and thereby conquer and claim ownership of a mountain gained a tragic dimension when Wimper's party suffered a catastrophic accident on the descent, resulting in the death of four of his fellow climbers. The moving force behind the film projects in 1937 was the German-based Austrian-Italian actor-director Louis Trenka. Trenka was and is known for his mountaineering and adventure films belonging to the German Bergfilm genre, which had enjoyed considerable popularity in the late 1920s and early 1930s, especially through the work of director Arnold Fank. These films are characterized by visual style that was intended to be overwhelming. Some examples of titles from the Bergfilm, the mountain film genre, there on the screen. They use breathtaking on-location cinematography that, harking back to iconography typical of romantic painting, evokes sublime landscapes in which the human element is dwarfed. Mountaineering and winter sports frequently play key roles in their melodramatic and often morbid storylines in which motifs of courage, honor, and sacrifice recur. For Siegfried Krakauer, writing in his important post-war assessment of pre-war German film, these films are inherently suspicious, combining, quote, sparkling ice axes and inflated sentiments. And, and Krakauer implies tapping into the same sentimental and quasi-mythical structures that national socialism was, so able, uh, was able so effectively to exploit. Fank's De Heilige Berg, so the Holy Mountain, frames its central characters in mystical terms, with Louis Trenka in his second film playing an earnest, driven man of the mountains who retreats to the solitary white world of the peaks to, quote, find himself. He struggles, hard, he struggles to relate to others and yet chooses to sacrifice himself to save the life of his erstwhile friend and love rival. Krakauer observes, quote, although this kind of heroism was too eccentric to serve as a pattern for the people in the valleys, it was rooted in, in, in a mentality kindred to the Nazi spirit. Immaturity and mountain enthusiasm were one, end quote. Such extrapolations are problematic, but it's not hard when viewing such films to be reminded of the iconography of National Socialism or of photographs of Hitler enjoying the views from the terrace or the colossal panoramic window of his Alpine Berghof residence. The early mountain films are rarely explicitly nationalistic, but to many post-war commentators, viewing them like Krakoa with the benefit of hindsight, it's tempting to view them at least as a related phenomenon. It's a view that can and should be challenged, and Eric Rentschler, the film historian, has rightly worked to correct Krakauer's rather one-sided view of the genre. Yet, is it entirely without merit? It's a question that seems especially apt when one turns to examples of the genre made in Germany after 1933. Louis Trenker's film career stretched from 1920, 1924, the year of his uh, first collaboration with Arnold Fank, through the Third Reich to the post-war years. He was not German, but South Tyrolean, 
born when the region still belonged to Austria. He trained as an architect and served on the Eastern Front and as a mountain guide during the First World War. Uh, and in the aftermath of the war, in the 1924 Olympics, he was part of a four-man Italian bobsleigh team. His war experiences inspired his novel, Berge in Flammen, Mountains in Flames, which he adapted into a successful film in 1931. Like Lenny Riefenstahl, his co-star in the, the Holy Mountain, and a far more notorious name in film history, Trenka's film career was decisively shaped by his work with Arnold Fank, and Rentschler has rightly noted that distinct parallels between, uh, noted the, the distinct parallels between their careers. Both became known for their evocation of, in Rentschler's words, primordial landscapes and pre-modern communities. And though both were, quote, outspoken advocates of a film art free of artifice and verbal ballast, they remained in Germany after Hitler's seizure of power and the Nazification of the German film industry and prospered there. Riefenstahl's official films of the 1934 Nuremberg rally and the 1936 Berlin Olympics are, it hardly needs to be said, notorious examples of art placed wholly in the service of propaganda and her reputation quite rightly never recovered. Trenka was arguably no less compromised, embedded and networked within the politically synchronized culture industry of the Third Reich. He was personally known to and liked by Hitler on whom he was able to call for favors and friendly with Eva Braun. Although he was adamant later never to have believed in fascist ideology, Trenka proved himself quite willing to bend to the demands of the prevailing, of, of the prevailing politics. This is most explicitly visible in his 1937 film Condottieri, made as a German-Italian co-production in both a German and an Italian language version and financed in part by Mussolini's government. Um, it's a sort of historical uh, film in which the, there are parallels invited between um, an historical and heroic his, his, uh, figure from Italian history and Mussolini. So a sort of fable of Italian fascism, in effect. But even in the film from this era for which Louis Trenka is most revered, De Falluana Zun, The Prodigal Son, still often ranked as one of the finest German films of the 1930s, we can see unmistakable parallels to the aesthetic and ideological norms of National Socialism. And in this film, we have a sort of fable in which a um, a man from the, the Alps goes on a sort of journey, uh, spends time in America before realizing the inherent value of his Germanic Heimat, to which he returns to a, more, to a more authentic existence at the end of the film. In the 1930s, Tanker was instantly recognizable, a star whom audiences expected to play the same type in his films, almost interchangeably. Rugged, physically courageous, good-natured, and above all, associated with a romanticized conception of Heimat, or the homeland, in particular dramatic landscape of the Alps and the Dolomites. This star quality was exploited by the Nazis in ways he had no control over, and Trenka's image was ever present in the German media after 1933. During the war, Trenka finally became a Nazi party member. 
after he fell foul of Goebbels, Goebbels' propaganda ministry, for more on the reasons for this later, he sought to regain favour by cooperating in the production of propaganda films. Despite this, in the post-war era, he was able quickly to re-establish himself as a popular figure representing a nostalgic regional identity and a depoliticized pride and a sense of Heimat uh, that placed an emphasis on landscape, environments, uh, and mountain sports especially. Herbert Groove, the mountain calls uh, and the challenge were made after Trenker's greatest successes as a filmmaker, but at a point at which he enjoyed considerable star power. His name and his distinctive square-jawed, rugged features could attract audiences, not only in Germany and Austria, but even in Britain, where he was known less for his most recent work as a director than for his starring roles in Fank's silent era films, many of which had achieved international acclaim uh, notably the mountaineering drama, The White Hell of Pitzpalu from 1929, which Fank co-directed with G.W. Pabst, and which was released in a sound version with English dialogue in 1930. The 1938 films saw Trenka return not only to this genre, but also to an historical subject that arguably had more historical resonance and relevance in Britain than in Germany. It was also one he had explored before. Tranker's first film as director was Der Kampf ums Matterhorn, so The Battle for the Matterhorn in 1928, a silent film based on a novelized account by Karl Hensel uh, of the 1865 race to be the first to climb the Matterhorn. Ten years later, with Tranker now an established director based in Berlin, he decided to return to the same material. The 1938 films are not a case, as would be typical today, of a single film adapted for a foreign market, either by synchronization or translated dialogue or by subtitling. Um, rather, they are examples of multiple language version films, often abbreviated to MLVs, a short-lived phenomenon of the early sound era, primarily the 1930s, before the advent of dubbing and subtitling. Studios hoping to achieve international success for a film often invested in a parallel production of the same film, what was essentially the same film, but in a different language, usually using a different cast. This was done by Hollywood studios, hoping, for example, to exploit Spanish, French or German markets, but also by many European studios who sometimes invested in one or more MLVs. Occasionally, the stars of the MLVs were the same. Famous examples include Marlene Dietrich and Emil Jannings, who star in both Der Blaue Engel and The Blue Angel, uh, the English language version that the UFA, the UFA studio made at the same time for release in the English market. In the case of Der Bergruft and The Challenge, the two versions have separate casts with the key exception of Louis Trenker himself, who received English language coaching to prepare for what would be his third portrayal of Jean-Antoine Carrel, known as, uh, uh, referred to as Tonio Carrel in films. Trenke produced and directed the German language version from a screenplay he had co-written, shooting the interiors in a studio in Berlin. My recent research in the archive of the British Film Institute has confirmed how an English language version of this film came to be made. Trenker sold the rights of his screenplay to Carlton Films, 
a British production company founded by a recent emigrant from Germany, Günther Stapenhorst, who until 1935 had been head of production at Germany's largest studio, Ufa. Stapenhorst then signed an agreement with London Films, founded by the Hungarian-born movie mogul Alexander Korda in 1932, and which produced a series of very popular films through the 1930s, many of them overtly concerned with aspects of British history and uh, or imperialistic or patriotic themes. With Corder's financial backing and an agreement signed establishing the international territorial distribution of the two films, Tanker then worked with the British director, Milton Rosmer, to make the challenge, with Stapenhorst credited as the producer. It was partly shot at Corder's Denham Studios in Buckinghamshire, but in keeping with Trenker's trademark dynamic style, the mountaineering scenes for both films were all shot for the most part twice over with the different cast members on location at the Matterhorn in Switzerland, lending these scenes visual power and grandeur. One of the reasons I became interested in the making of the challenge was that its screenplay was written, or perhaps more accurately, freely adapted from the German original by Emmerich Pressburger. Like Korda, Pressburger was both Hungarian-born and Jewish, although he's now known for his later collaborations with Michael Powell, and as such, one of the greatest names in British film history. His early career had been at Ufa in Berlin, and he had come, which had come to an abrupt end with the Nazi's seizure of power in 1933, after which he spent time in exile, first in Italy, then in France, before settling in Britain, where his connections to Korda and to people like Günther Stapenhorst gave him work at a time that many exiled writers were struggling. What's clear from all this is that in 1938, despite an inimical relationship between Britain and Nazi Germany, and an apparently categorical division between individuals who had taken the option to remain and to cooperate with the Nazis and those who had been forced into exile, the film industry continued to work through informal channels, personal connections and social networks that defied this division. These networks meant that a personal associate of Hitler himself in the shape of Louis Trinker could work alongside emigrants and exiles, many of them Jewish, from Nazi Germany to apparently mutual benefit. A curious addendum to this, requiring further investigation, I should say, um, is that according to Alexander Corder's biographer, Charles Drazin, there's evidence that he had the support of the British Secret Intelligence Service during the 30s and 40s. Drazin reports that in 1937, it was agreed, quote, London films would provide cover for SIS agents in Europe. That date, just as his film company commenced cooperation on the challenge, is certainly intriguing, but Drazin doesn't actually provide any concrete evidence for that assertion, but maybe when I get the time, I'll, I'll look into it. According to Trinker's own recollection, the two screenplays took account of the particular needs of the two markets, and there are indeed marked deviations and differences throughout. The film historian Kamal Hack was the first to consider the two films as separate entities. And he notes that the changes on the whole served to cast the British climber Wimper in a better light in the challenge than in the German film, while playing down the character and climbing prowess of his rival Carell. 
Yet despite this, the very existence of these parallel versions raises several questions that have yet to be fully answered, especially in regard to the political resonance of a narrative of contested borders and conquered summits, summits in a year in which these themes have gained a renewed sense of urgency and relevance. The films were, after all, released just weeks after the Anschluss of Austria, and the following summer, shortly before the annexation of the Czech Sudetenland in the autumn of 1938, a team of German and Austrian climbers made the first ascent of the north face of the Eiger. Uh, this achievement was, as the Swiss government had feared when they had temporarily tried to ban attempts to climb the north face in 1936, exploited as, propaganda, as a propaganda victory for the National Socialist regime. In this context, it may have been difficult for audiences to respond to the films only as period dramas. The German version, of course, had to satisfy the political demands of Nazi censorship, but the degree to which films reflected or reinforced the cultural and ideological expectations of National Socialism varied. Trenker claimed in his memoir that this production was continually queried and challenged by Goebbels' propaganda ministry. He does not specify the grounds, but is insistent that both films are apolitical. The latter film, or rather the challenge, uh, also had to satisfy the British censor and would have been banned had it been perceived to have an overt political agenda. But the fact that it was passed does not mean that the film is entirely neutral. Trenker's claims are arguably disingenuous, as in certain respects, in its themes of heroic masculinity, honor, sacrifice, courage, his film conforms with core motifs with, within the Nazis' agenda for cultural production, as he was surely aware. Of course, these motifs are not exclusively fascist or fascistic. One can find many of them expressed emotively in lavish color films, such as The Drum, also known as Drums, and The Four Feathers, narratives of British imperial glory that proved major successes for Corder's studio in 1938 and 39. And as I, was, as I will recall, uh, argue in my concluding section shortly, the films also address themes that are far from typical of national socialist narratives and which were perhaps more evident and appealing to those whose sense of identity was more local than national in character or which incorporated a transnational dimension at odds with the encompassing pan-Germanic identity the Nazis were keen to promote. Similarly, although Pressburger's English adaptation serves to flatter British tastes by downplaying the positive aspects of Wimper's rival, its celebration of individual autonomy over external moral authority is quite unlike the optimistic imperial agenda characteristic of the military dramas produced by Corda Studio. To explore all this, we should be clear, first of all, that the idea that a film concerned with mountaineering and the battle to so-called conquer a, a peak could be apolitical is quite fanciful. Almost all organized sporting activity in Germany underwent systematic politicization after 1933, and mountaineering in German Alpinismus was no exception. In fact, there were few other sports under the Nazis that had been so thoroughly co-opted and ideologically imprinted than mountaineering. Even before 1933, the German and Austrian Alpenverein, as Rainer Amstetter's research has revealed, 
had been proactively anti-Semitic, allowing it to avoid the systematic restructuring most German sporting associations and governing bodies suffered in 1933. It had essentially already gone through a process of voluntary political Gleichstaltung or synchronization. And you have there on the left uh, the emblem of the Alpine Society, the Alpenverein, the Edelweiss flower, with combined, of course, with a swastika. This is a, a badge from the, the Nazi era. Um, in the following years, mountaineering as a pursuit was promoted, especially to young people, as suitable for the type of German citizen the Nazis were aiming to foster. In 1934, the Minister, minister for Sport, Hans von Schammer and Osten, singled out the uh, idea of the battle and struggle in German Kampf as of central importance to mountaineering, which he praised as, quote, breeding a particular form of antagonistic character on which they place value. Quote, mountaineers don't have to be taught how to fight since mountaineering in itself equals fighting, end quote. The following year, Paul Bauer, head of the Office for Mountaineering and Hiking, Fachamt, stated that the goal of mountaineering in Germany was in the development of, quote, German body and spirit. By 1938, the charter of the German Alpine Society specifically identified the creation of national Volksbewusstsein, national consciousness, in the spirit of the national socialist state as a key purpose. It was a small step from this to the active encouragement of a warlike, aggressive or militaristic dimension to a sport that had once prior to the First World War been quite inclusive and focused less on aggressive character building than on appreciation of an engagement with landscape and nature. Meinhard Zilt, as Harald Hörbusch has noted, made this case in numerous articles in mountaineering journals in the late 1930s, with titles such as Mountaineering as a Form of Mobilization, drawing on the work of a writer like Ernst Jünger to evoke the modern German mountaineer as, above all, a warrior. Mountaineering represents a battle experience of the first order, which in the form of uh, form of facing and overcoming danger is fundamental to it. We need to talk about mountaineering as a form of battle, about the mountaineer as a type of warrior. That's the sort of language he uses throughout his articles. This attitude even allowed the regime, for whom, for whom a willingness to die for the cause was a high virtue, to celebrate heroic failure, as in the case of the multiple, often catastrophic, state-sponsored attempts to reach the summit the notoriously difficult, no, notoriously dangerous and difficult Himalayan peak, Nanga Parbat, which became mythologized as the German mountain of destiny, drawing on, a, drawing on the name of a 1924 Arnold Funk film. The 1934 ex expedition to Nanga Parbat, in which 10 party members died, including the leader, Willy Merkel, is the subject of the 1936 film Nanga Parbat, you can see some promotional material for it um, on the screen there, which is almost entirely focused and revolves around motifs of heroic, self-sacrificing combat with the mountain. An awareness of this context is therefore important if we are to produce an informed reading of Trinker's film. As I suggested earlier, it's not difficult to find thematic, visual, narrative elements that entirely accord with the politicized conception of mountaineering I've just outlined. The location shooting with its frequent use of vertiginous shots, 
wide angles, dizzying camera movement, pans and so on, serves to emphasise throughout a strong sense of a man of man in a battle against the hostile natural world. The version of the German screenplay held by the BFI characterises Carell in the following way, quote, his manly face summoning all his powers with profound seriousness displays the heroism of the human being engaged in courageous battle with the forces of nature. And to give you a, a quick sense of the film, here's a short extract, if I can get it to work, from the, the German film. And it was supposed to play automatically in the right spot. Yeah, it was 1740. So it, but I think it's going to start from the, the beginning. So I'm just going to find the right spot. We'll just watch a minute or so and you can get a sense. There we go. you get a good sense of the fairly spectacular cinematography that the film does does feature and if i'm going to recommend you watch the films it would be for that reason primarily i think um both of the films open with Carell, played of course by Trenka, and embodying precisely the virtues of the mountaineer as warrior first in a solitary fight to reach the peak and then as in this scene as a guide for edward wimper who initially treats him with arrogance, challenging his masculinity when he suggests that they turn back, and then is grateful when Carell rescues him after an accident and is framed as a consequence of his own overconfidence in the German film, but as purely a matter of bad luck in the British one. The first part of the film ends with them committing to climb the mountain together the following year. Both the films present a fictionalized version of the historical events in which the comradeship between Carell and Wimper is tested when they are deliberately misled into believing that each is planning the expedition without the other. As framed in the plot, the conspiracy to trick the two friends is driven in part by greed and the economic rivalry between the Italian and Swiss villages on either side of the mountain, Roy Zermatt. 
the scheming Italian hotelier in Broy is eager to capitalize on a successful ascent of the mountain from Italy rather than Switzerland with a likely influx of investment and tourism. The characters in Samat are equally keen to exploit a successful claiming of the mountain for Switzerland. In an echo of themes that were prominent in his earlier film, The Prodigal Son, this also constructs urban life and capitalism as corrupting, as a motif it aligns closely with the negative stereotyping of urban society and civilization in national socialist ideology, frequently presented in negative contrast with a supposedly more authentic national community and culture. There's no question that the memory of the race to climb the Matterhorn has also been, and still is, colored by our familiarity with the symbolic investment in exploration and conquest as a proxy for national or imperial strength and prestige. For the British Alpine Club, whose members were for the most part a privilege of Victorian gentlemen, the first ascent of the Matterhorn, the ensuing tragedy notwithstanding, is remembered as the crowning achievement of the so-called golden age of Alpine climbing. And even today, it tends to be commemorated in British sources as a primarily British achievement, just as the conquest of Everest is, of course, involving a New Zealander and the Nepalese almost a century later. And the impulse to view the events of 1865 through a national lens was certainly not unique to Britain. In his account of making the, his first Matterhorn film in 1928, Trenka reports that his Italian cameraman had tried to insist that he should anachronistically perform the fascist Roman salute when he finally reached the summit. Trenka refused and retrospectively claims that, quote, Carell would have been anything but a fascist and I wasn't one either. In both versions of the film, the ascent of the Matterhorn represents the dramatic crux, with the two parties not only representing competing national claims upon the Matterhorn, Italian versus Swiss, which until that point had no agreed name, but also different a different national rivalry for supremacy and mountaineering. Here the competition is between Britain and the recently unified Italy. In a scene common to both films, Carell is invited by the Italian Club Alpino based in urban Milan, to lead an Italian party up the mountain. And we'll have a quick look at the, that scene from the English film um, to give you a sense of how that exchange plays out. And I think, oh, sorry, I need to go back there. Get my clip to play. Yeah, 32.55. Just take us to... I'll do. Yeah, just watch a minute too. This is Signor Giordano. You sent for me? I'm here. We sent for you, Carrera, because we understand you intend to go with Edward Wimper up the peak from Switzerland. From which side are you? It's my business. How's <laughs> to Carrera? When you hear the honor I have to confer on you, I hope you will reconsider that decision. Well, I want you to be the leader of my Italian party. I thank you, Signor Giordano, but I'm sorry I can't. Can't? Nonsense. Listen, Carell. Our valley is poor. It needs money. Tourists bring it. But if the peak is climbed from Zermatt, they'll go there. They'll say where one man can climb, 
So can another. Damn, that gets the new hotel, the railway. And we'll be poorer than ever. I tell you, I can't go. He'll ruin us, the traitor. Which of you caught me dead? Corel, you were born here. Think of your village. Wimper has my word. An English, you're an Italian, one of ourselves. You scarcely know this, Wimper. I don't know you at all. Wimper is my friend. What do you call a man who throws over his countrymen for a foreigner's money? What is he, I say? A blackleg. If you were... I'll stop that. Stop it there. Um, so in this scene, Carell's reluctance to agree, even when he hears the accusation of treachery or being a blackleg and so on, is characterised as a matter of personal honour, but it's partly also due to a pronounced sense of alienation from the totalising national claim being made upon him and his endeavour. So the line where he's told, you're an Italian, you're one of us. And he replies, but I don't know you at all. I've never seen you before. Mr. Wimpo is my friend. Carell's sense of identity as framed in both films is intensely, intensely regional, even topographical, and intends flexibly across borders. He feels more kinship with a fellow climber from Britain than with Italian nationalists from Milan. When Carell does eventually agree to climb with the Italian party, it's only because of the aforementioned subterfuge and scheming. It's therefore noticeable and perhaps surprising that the moral claim upon a citizen, exercised by national responsibility and duty, is relativized in both films. Could this be the source of the difficulties that Trenker later claimed he encountered with the propaganda ministry? I'm not so sure. The draft of the German screenplay held by the BFI is longer than the shooting script and includes a fuller description of the bourgeois social scene amongst tourists in Samat. For example, there's a whole secondary plot involving the composer Tchaikovsky, who's traveling in the company of an opera singer and is supposedly keen to climb the Matterhorn. And all that's entirely absent in the final version of the film. But the aforementioned scenes depicting nationalism as duplicitous and exploitative are present in both the, shoot, the original version of the script and the final version of the script. They're no more extensive or explicit in the draft screenplay. If they did cause difficulties with Goebbels' ministry, these difficulties were overcome. In the German press, in which there was no longer any scope for critical reviews, the film was unsurprisingly praised, praised for its moral dimension, especially its depiction of courage and honor. Uh, Walter Herrmann, writing in the Hamburger Nachrichten, states that Carell, who intervenes to exonerate Wimper from, from, from blame for the accident at the film's climax, is so able to plant the, quote, the great banner of comradeship, um, quote, thus the dramatic battle ends with two equal victors. In his account of making the films, Tranko is at pains to emphasize that he saw the project as the result of a conscious decision to reject pressure to politicize his films in any way. Moreover, he felt that the idea of an international production would allow him even greater freedom. Both Kamal Haq and the uh, film historian Christian Rapp have suggested that this international co-production should be understood in the context of Goebbels's continued desire, even in 1938, to attract favorable publicity for Germany in Britain. Rapp argues that the central friendship between an Italian and a Britain in no way offsets or lessens their 
their respective national identities, and that the films affirm a conception of personal identity in which the national remains central. I'm not entirely persuaded. This was not, after all, a case of a German film being released in Britain, but being remade, being remade by London film with a largely British cast. Only Trenker's presence creates a link to German film, yet his international profile was not especially German, the, or was not perceived to be especially German. The Daily Mail, in its review of the challenge, singles the film out, seemingly unaware that there even existed a German version, so it was singled out for being especially and, quote, honestly British. In a, previously, in a preview of the film published in a British regional newspaper in November 1938, Tank is described as, quote, one of the screen's most colorful personalities, but it doesn't mention his connection to Germany, only that he was an Austrian officer during the war. There is, however, a subtext to the film, and especially to its framing of a narrative through recurrent reflections on borders, allegiances, and competing identities that would soon become very relevant and very political in the life of Louis Trenker and in Europe more generally. Just a year after the film's release, Hitler and Mussolini signed their so-called Pact of Steel and the future of South Tyrol and other contested regions south of the Brenner Pass once again became a focus for discussion. Mussolini set great store on the supposedly natural border represented by the Brenner Pass and had conducted a campaign to Italianize this region since coming to power. In October 1939, with Europe now, of course, at war, an agreement was reached to allow the German-speaking Italians of South Tyrol and in certain other areas, also minorities who spoke Ladin and even Slovenian, the option of German citizenship and German, of course, German national identity by extension, which would, however, require them to leave their homes and move north for, the, for resettlement in the German Reich. You can see the, uh, the location of South Tyrol right at the north of Italy, bordering with Austria. And there, of course, the relative positions of North Tyrol in Austria, South Tyrol uh, today uh, in Italy. Um, of the approximately quarter of a million who were eligible to vote, in the end, around 85% voted in favour of moving to the German Reich. There you have some propaganda material from the campaign to promote the so-called option. Return to the Reich is the motto on the left. The Führer calls, it says on the right-hand side, the Führer is calling. The process was, however, hugely divisive and triggered passionate and sometimes violent disagreement between those favoring the German national option and those who preferred to retain a more regional sense of Heimat and by default, Italian citizenship. Trenka as one of the most prominent South Tyrolians found himself politically exposed over this issue. And when it emerged that he was not willing to support the option, the option to, to, to uh, return to the German Reich, his glittering Berlin-based career was essentially over. Trenker's argument was that while South Tyrolians recognized their German Volkstum, so sort of national, uh, almost an ethnic identity, this was inseparable in his eyes from the, their geographical homeland. 
He suggested that he felt unable either to back the option, which meant surrendering the quote, in his words, surrendering the Heimat, nor to positively choose fascist Italy as the alternative. And he writes in his memoir, the only way out for me was to do nothing and to choose neither the one nor the other. There are, of course, I think, some tragic echoes of this and similar dilemmas being played out, for example, in the Ukraine right now, where the borders have likewise changed many times over the years and linguistic and cultural identities are complex and resistant to totalizing nationalistic claims. Klenka's follow-up film originally was meant to be set in the Tyrol and very quickly ran into significant problems with the censor against the background of all this. But we can see Trenka's position anticipated in the films in which, which I've been discussing this evening. Carell is characterized less as a patriot than as a stubborn individualist, and is presented as a figure who's marginalized in his community, as we saw in that scene. Throughout, throughout he feels little in the way of obligation to forms of collective identity or duty. Repeatedly, the screenplay sets his individuality and insistence on personal freedom against commercial, but also regional and national agendas. I don't answer to anyone but myself, he says at one point, from which side I go is my business. Despite the national competition, the films imply repeatedly that the mountains are ultimately unconquerable. And moreover, as something like a, an ex-territorial space in which borders are ultimately irrelevant and artificial. The final line of the challenge, as Carell states that the mountains are free to all men. The theme here is not, as uh, Brapp and other film historians have implied, that of an internationalism which preserves the importance of national identities and borders, but as of a transnationalism in which they are hybridized, flexible, and negotiable. Had the films been released just a year later with the South Tyrol question live, with Europe at war, it seems unlikely that the German censor would have passed the film so readily. Indeed, although both films seem at times to endorse the image of the mountaineer as heroic warrior, and despite the association of the mountains with masculinity, the film's characters deviate from stereotypical gender roles in interesting ways. For example, Carell's strong-willed working mother, a midwife, offers a principled rejection of the nationalist agenda for which her son is meant to risk his life, and the character of Felicitas, who's in love with Carell, likewise operates as a moral counterbalance to the cult of the mountain, to which the male characters all seem enthralled. The endorsement of both Wimper and Carell as free spirits rather than national icons echoes the achievements of a previous generation of individualistic climbers, such as the Austrian-Jewish innovator Paul Preuss, um, who, on whose career I've been working quite recently, who pioneered free climbing in the years before the First World War. We might even say, perhaps it's, perhaps anyway, we might even say it anticipates the counterculturalism that became associated with climbing, particularly American climbing in the Yosemite Valley in the post-war era. But thinking of the context of 1938, this affirmation of personal ethics and individual freedoms will surely have chimed with many audience members as far removed from the political reality of what, alas, proved to be a fateful year in world history. So 
I'll stop there. And thank you very much for listening. Oh, thank you, uh, John. And uh, I'm sure everybody's enjoyed that back at home as well. I certainly enjoyed it in the room. Um, we've got time for questions, um, if people have got them. If you want to ask a question, uh, just unmute yourself and uh, fire away. Mark Hewitson's got a question. Do you want to... Um, I didn't want to put in though. Um, no, fine. No, go for it. Yeah, I'm here okay. to listen to you. Um, I just wondered when exactly the film was released, particularly in Germany. Um, obviously, Anschluss comes in March. Yeah. And this is an Austrian director. Yeah, one or two after the Anschluss, I think, was the release date. Yeah. Um, um, so it was be between March and September, was it? Yeah. Between yeah. Munich and, <laughs> and yeah. the Anschluss, in, yeah. in effect. Um, April or May. I think the German film came out before the before the English British version, but um, mm. uh, closely coinciding with the Anschluss. In fact, did the German reviews attempt to make something of Tranker's Austrian? Not, not really. Um, not really, or, or only in in a fairly sort of harmless way. Um, um, the by. By, by 1938, sort of, there isn't really anything like uh, a sort of uh, um, a serious means of reviewing films in anything like a critical way in the German press. So what they tended to publish were sort of descriptions that just more or less praised films. Um, mm. So his, in, in the reviews that I did read, I didn't see them politicizing his Austrianness in, in any explicit way. Um, um, perhaps that's surprising, but I think they, they were made more of the film um, uh, as, I, as I suggested, as an expression of these more generalized national virtues, masculine mm. virtues, uh, courage, honor, making a lot of the um, uh, honorable behavior of the, the figure of Carell who fails to be the first to reach the summit, but has a sort of a moral redemption when he intervenes to uh, help out his old friend, uh, who's unfairly accused of having, uh, having uh, cut the rope, um, which, uh, and thereby killing his, his, his comrades on, on the mountain. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that, that sort of intervention at the end is moral redemption, and that's the key moment in the German reviews that allows them to claim that there are these sort of two, two forms of victory expressed in, in the film, um, whilst you know, sort of tapping into some of the same motifs that I was mentioning relating to this, this generalized idea of camp or combat, battle, struggle with nature, with, with the mountain, which is invested with all sorts of other ideological implications, I think, in the reviews. Um, which are all in the background in the film. They're not explicit, but I think if you're thinking of how it would have been received at the time, it's not hard to see how it, how, um, it fits with this more broadly with a political propaganda agenda that was being voiced all the way, all the time, really, in, under National Socialism. Mm -hmm. But it's, so the timing is certainly interesting. And as I was saying at the end, it's sort of... Um, um, in a weird sort of way, uh, anticipates the uh, debate in which he was embroiled a year later, uh, choosing between a regional uh, identity and a pan-Germanic identity, and he opts for this sense of this allegiance to the Heimat, which essentially means the end of his of his of his career, or at least of official backing for his, for his films in in, in Nazi Germany. Mm.
Thank you. Um, well, while people are thinking, um, I just wanted to ask you about the music, actually, because the, the, the film of the two climbers ascending the mountain is very yeah. striking. In yeah. Because it reminded me of um, Richard Burton and uh, yeah. Clint Eastwood in uh, climbing up the Schloss Adler in Where Eagles Dare. <laughs> but obviously the music in that film was much more different. It's very dramatic. Whereas yeah. this, the music in this film seems to be very kind of uplifting. That, that there isn't that feeling of peril that you usually get in mountaineering films. Um, is that is it just that I'm reading that scene wrong, or is it? Uh, is no, it perhaps you're not. I mean, I think the the, the music was intended to uh, be a motive. That's mm. for sure. Um, I when I was looking at the um, the original screen, the German screenplay, um, which I did have a you know, am I, we're not still sharing the slides. I are think we? we are. Are yeah. we just tap back? There, that there one. it is. Yeah. Um, which I don't think the BFI wanted me to take that photograph, but I, I did anyway. Um, 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 which had a slightly different name originally, a Sturm aus Matterhorn, sort of storming the Matterhorn, and they changed it. But it, it features quite um, quite precise descriptions of the music mm. um, and the effect that it's supposed to have, um, mapping onto some of the same um, sort of virtues and qualities that they they're hoping that these these scenes were expressing so courage in the face of peril and so on um i think perhaps it seems slightly dated yeah, to a contemporary yeah. sort of ear um and so um perhaps you missed slightly that sense of extreme peril that maybe would be expressed in a a score uh in a post-war yeah movie but um so just to be clear, they use the same music for no, each film. No, I think this no, music's right. different. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah, well, yeah. it's quite interesting yeah, as well to see the whether there's production a is different in, yeah. in most respects. Um, obviously, they're completely reshot. Uh, they have different credits all the way through, apart from Tank, who gets co co directing credit right. for the 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 mountaineering scenes. Uh, some of which I think are reused, insofar as they don't have dialogue, but um, some of them were. were Completely separate, um, but the the music is is different in, oh, okay. in the um, in the British uh, film. Um, I I think it it has that sort of it's perhaps slightly. I mean, I'm certainly no specialist in, in film no, music, but they, it, it it it's it's fairly conventional in the way it's it's it it sort of um, um, attempts at key moments to sweep you along, you know, and. Mm. Uh, I think that, that that was the intended effect in those those uh, those moments as they they climb when he slips and nearly falls and when he's rescued and pulled and the music swells. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, I'm not sure I've got much more to say about the music. It's not an aspect which I've really focused on. Yeah. Is there anyone out there who wants to? Uh... Oh, Jeff, crap. there's a question in the chat. Oh, we... sorry, I didn't see that. Can yeah, you... I just posted a question in the chat. Thanks, John, for a fascinating yeah. paper. I was just wondering um, and was intrigued by the continuity and popularity of the Heimatfirma and the Bergfirma uh, post-45. And as you can imagine, I'm interested in how you see the, the uh, continuity and how you would um, kind of place it. Yeah, well, I mean, the um, I'm, I'm sure some of you might be aware that, that the this idea of the Heimat film, um, the film homeland film is another relate i'd say related film genre popular in german uh in germany 
um, Germany stroke Austria, which became extremely popular in the post-war era uh, in the 50s onwards. Um, and uh, they, these are frequently quite sentimental melodramas set in sort of uh, rural settings, regional, regional settings, and which are in the post-war era, certainly not explicitly uh, uh, politicized in any, in any way, of course, but which in a strange sort of way do point to some con continuities as you were implying, I think, Sandra, in your question. Um, with what had gone before. I mean, that's visible partly in that the, some of the stars of those early Heimark films are actually the same people who were in German films before 1945, uh, people like Billy Fritsch uh, and one or two others. Um, so you see that in sort of the, the star, the, you know, these, the types that they played, the sort of uh, the continuity in the casts and the types of uh, plots that we see. Um, but where, I mean, it's not, again, it's not something which I particularly explored, but it's, um, I would say it's one of those areas which, um, where you have a sort of um, um, an unacknowledged sense of continuity between past and present that served the interests, I think, of many people in the post-war mm. era, where, where you, couldn't, you couldn't explicitly be nostalgic about Nazi Germany. But you could be uh, nostalgic about a more generalized or sentimental vision of our that would be seen a, as a rupture a, in, yeah, a, in a, a German a German, yeah. German landscape, German community, German a sort of Germanness that is divorced from history, and that you get that a lot in those films. Um, the Berg film um, evolved through the the mountain film evolves from being, you know, quite mystical. Um, as I suggested in those films by Funk from the 1920s onwards to being, I think, more politicized in the sorts of uh, examples that I've been talking about that were made in this era. And that, that would be true, I think, of uh, the British film, which seems consistent in some ways with some of the hero heroizing discourses of imperialistic dramas. But, um, the film, the genre hasn't gone away, is also has lived on in the post-war era and is still popular today. And you, you watch many mountaineering dramas today and you probably recognize some of the same motifs, mm. um, the same cliches probably, uh, it's fair to say. So it's interesting certainly just how, how you know, it's tempting to, to view a film in a, in a Nazi context and say that is so very reflective of what the Nazis wanted, wanted to express. It's, it's essentially an example of propaganda. And then you look at a much later film and it's hard to find any real, you know, meaningful differences in some, in some key respects. So that's just a few thoughts really. Yeah. I think Christiane Krobel has a question. Well, it's probably more of a comment than a question. Um, I'm, German of the uh, immediate post-war period or 1950s uh, onwards. And I remember um, Louis Trenka uh, uh, not as an actor I've actually ever seen in a film, but in comments uh, my parents made who had been through the war. And uh, certainly they um, had nothing good to say about him. and. 
And in our family, we never ever watched any of those either pre-war or post-war Heimat film. I hadn't actually realized um, that how popular they seem to be from what you've just said. And I, I'm wondering, um, my parents certainly associated them with more Southern German Bavarian type of uh, mentality. It's probably not the kindest way of saying, but um, as Northern German, um, it's certainly uh, somewhat prejudicial. <laughs> So um, um, I'm really, uh, I'd like to thank you very much for this because I had no idea um, some people are actually sort of uh, rethinking Louis Trenka. To yes. me, definitely not a person um, <clears throat> to um, um, appreciate, let's put it that way. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I think, as I said at the start, and there are these parallels with Lenny Riefenstahl, you know, he starred alongside her. They, they both made, you know, there are strong connections between their careers, some of the types of films that they made. Um, and yet Tanker has had more of a rehabilitation than, than Riefenstahl, for sure. And I certainly think in, in the Tyrol region, in Austria, perhaps also in South, South Tyrol, his popularity was retained in the post-war era and he would, almost certainly, I'm sure you're right, it seemed much more of a distant figure in Germany or North Germany, for sure. You know, he, but in the post-war era, as far as I can tell, he's mainly associated with regional identity, uh, with the Alps, the Dolomites and so on. But, you know, you only have to Google his name right now and you'll see there's a whole brand associated with him, Louis Trenka outfits, Louis Trenka cheese uh, on sale that I found. Um, you know, and all with his um, his signature embossed on it. Um, so there's he's certainly not someone you know who's only remembered as uh, you know a collaborator with the Nazis. Say he's more comparable in some respects with another sporting figure I've researched, Max Schmeling, who was equally comfortable working with and alongside the Nazis, and yet. Uh, managed to reconstruct himself post-war as a, a sort of moral figure almost. And, and, and Trenk is perhaps not quite in the same league, but does something similar. Yeah. We've got a question in the chat from yeah. Phil Dine. Um, yeah. It says, great talk, John. A related post-war question, if I may. Yeah. Where would you locate Heinrich Harrer's book, The White Spider, yeah. on the 1934 Eiger Nordland expedition? published yeah. in the late 1950s. Yeah, well, that, that's actually, it's the 38th Eigenordland expedition, I think, that the book's about, because it's about the first, it's about the first successful oh, you mentioned ascent that. of the, the Eiger, um, and not to be confused the more uh, with, 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 the, with a notorious unsuccessful wait, wait, uh, expedition 1936, which failed and in which which in which uh, the climbers died um which i think he does also describe in from, from memory he does also describe in that in that book but Hara um um was a figure who was sort of co-opted by the nazis uh and i think held up for a while as a heroic figure of the type that I was suggesting, this sort of mountaineer as warrior and so on. But um, his later career has served to 
to distance himself from from that, you know. But he was some, very much someone who was interested in the more mystical side of mountains and mountaineering. Uh, the book itself, obviously, is retrospective and is in no way a product of the um, uh, the propaganda that went with the successful expedition in '38 or the successful ascent of the Eiger in '38, uh, and is more of a technical. Uh, perhaps more neutral account of it. So it's a mountaineering classic, um, much respected, I think, um, and not, not, tends not to be read um, only or primarily in the context of the, the political context of the 1930s. But it's easy to forget that, that the uh, mountaineering was, was very, was, I mean, as a successful expedition, um, uh, or a successful ascent, a first ascent, was something that the Nazis were keen to exploit, did exploit, used for propaganda purposes at the time. Uh, the Swiss, as I hinted at in my, my talk, uh, were very aware of that and were reluctant to see their mountains used in this way, but were effectively powerless to really stop people coming and, and, and climbing them. So there was a slight tension around uh, mountaineering and how it should be used and exploited at the time. Actually, on that kind of subject, so, because obviously it's a historical film, isn't it? So it's set in the 19th century. But yeah. a lot of this kind of nationalism around achievements in sport, for example, and thinking of mm. aircraft races and things like this, yeah. but mountaineering as well, is also a very, it's a technological triumph, isn't it? As well as a kind of a masculine triumph. Yeah. Is there any sense of that in, in this film? even though it's set 100 years before or 80 years well, before. It, it tries to do justice yeah. to the technology that they had yeah. at their disposal in 1865. Yeah. Uh, back then, um, um, the, the, the norms of mountaineering were slightly different. And there was a, almost a moral commitment from the early 20th century that you would only climb by fair, so-called fair means. Um, that, that didn't apply in the 19th century and Wimper was happy to lug ladders up mountains and use them to get up the difficult bits and so. Um, there was a scene in the draft screenplay in which he has difficulty getting his ladders over the Swiss border. There's sort of various scenes uh, at borders which were eventually cut from the, uh, the final version of the film. Um, and I don't think we see any scenes with ladders on the, on the mountain at the time, but we do see plenty of scenes in which ropes are crucial. And it's a rope that plays the, the dramatic sort of uh, role at the, um, the moment of tragedy because a, a rope fails. Mm. And the question is, does the rope fail because of poor manufacture or is it because Wimper has cut the rope to save himself? And it turns out that it's a poor rope. Right. Um, rather than him cutting it. But in both films, Carell uh, has to, to climb the mountain again, find the remains of the rope, and we see the close-up, we see the frayed ends, we recognise that it's not been cut by a knife. And then the rope maker gets the blame for that. Mm. Um, so, te you know, the technology of the equipment does actually feature mm. in the film, and the limits of that technology does actually play a role. But you're right, I mean, climbing is... Um, is about partly about technology and partly about courage, skill, and all the other things as well. Um, I, I guess a more recent documentary uh, like Free Solo, I mean, the, the absolute thrill and the terror of watching a film like that is that there is no technology involved. Mm. It's just one man climbing with no, with no safety uh, 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 fallbacks. 
at all. And that's not the norm in climbing. It's not how most of us could imagine ever approaching climbing. We would we would want to know that there were safety fallbacks mm. in place and the technology to support those has been evolving uh, really since, since the 19th century. Mm. Um, do we have any more questions? I'm aware we're kind of going up to about an hour and 15, so. Yeah, I mean, Sandra's comment there is that people yeah. were watching Climb Up from the, oh, yeah, the yeah. 1990s. They, they've not entirely gone away and they're still shown again a lot on, on, on TV. Um, the Tranker's earlier films, some of them at least, uh, are still fairly, fairly well known. The, the Prodigal Son is the one that is perhaps best known and is sometimes, as I mentioned, listed as one of the great German films, ignoring the era in which and the system which produced it so it's possible to watch that film without the con political context although i would say it makes more sense to look at it in context but yeah well thank you everyone yeah. for the yeah. comments and questions yeah thank you so much for coming this evening i know it's been a beautiful evening today so credit to you for uh, staying indoors and uh, avoiding the sun um, this is the last of our uh, seminars this term we are hoping to organize something for next term, but that's still kind of in the pipeline at the moment. Um, but once more, thank you very much. And also thank you to the um, German History Society with whom this was a collaboration this evening and to, uh, to Mark, um, who's out there somewhere. Here, there he is, who should have I'm been here. Thank you. Have been here <laughs> doing, doing, uh, doing the chairing role today. Um, but um, I hope it's a fruitful partnership that we can carry on into the future. Um, but yeah, for now, I do too. Everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, again. Bye.